Bookworm Games, Episode 10, Zombies and Ghosts. Welcome back, this is Wesley Schantz, and to start off I have some tremendous comments from Alexander Schmid, following from our last uh, episode, a conversation with my fiancée, Stephanie Bell. Here they are. Bookworm Games, this is Alexander Schmid from the Alexander Schmid Podcast. There was something that Stephanie Bell said in the podcast today, talking about when in Animal Crossing, when she would put the game down for a small amount of time, she would forget her short-term goals. And I wondered to what extent you you thought that that's sort of like how life works. That when you stop working towards your bigger goals in ter- uh, by means of your small or your short-term goals, that you sort of forget where it is you are in life. That you become disoriented. And so... One of the reasons to, like, say, for example, stay in school or to keep working through that which is difficult in, say, a marriage or even a workout session is precisely that the alternative is not that your life gets easier, but that you become disoriented and no longer know where it is you are and why it is that you exist. Alexander Schmidt, back again with another question. So something interesting that Steph mentioned was about how she likes to go through the games, but she doesn't like to have to follow the story. And I wondered if you thought that that was a temperamental difference between, say, like a conscientious person that's defined by the big five factor analysis, <clears throat> where they like to work, but and they like to think they're doing good, but they don't necessarily care about what the overarching story is. Whereas, say, um, somebody more in the creativity domain or openness to experience might really have an itch they can't scratch if they don't understand the reason for which they're doing each specific thing they're doing. Um, and so I wonder I wonder if that's a temperamental sort of difference. But it also strikes me as, as, hmm, as something more as well, because certainly I do recall as a young person preferring to play than to think about the game. And so I, I wonder what's there as well. I wonder if it's something like this. Jean PSA suggests that the better you get at games, the more bottom-up you've become, the more you've uh, developed from the bottom-up, um, the, the more you are capable of playing games in differing domains with differing sorts of tasks requiring differing skills. Because you're capable of developing them and seeing a certain structure to games and thus uh, playing well in whatever the competence hierarchy happens to be. And so I wonder if um, the difference is sort of the difference of being a teacher uh, rather than a student or a coach rather than a player, that as as one's understanding of games changes throughout time, one less and less wants to play or needs to play the game for highest joy but, and rather, or rather, the highest joy one gets is from either teaching the game, pondering the game, or coming up with new strategies that might be applied effectively to the game so that the greater game is thinking about the game itself. The Schrodinger's cat metaphor you used was very interesting as well, because how I take that to mean is that when you look at the box, you don't know whether the cat is alive or dead, and so both potential possible futures and uh, uh, can exist, or, or rather both presents can exist, and they depend for their existence upon your future action, as well as your present awareness of the choice, which strikes me as precisely what potential is in this situation. If you say I have to choose between two things to do, you don't know which one you're going to do at first, and so you don't know which one you're going to do until you do one instead of the other, <clears throat> though potentially that that decision is made before 
action by conscious choice. And so it strikes me that the Schrodinger's cat is applied to life is that you have to convert your potential into actuality, and thus, though you have fewer choices, you're more real. So something else very interesting that Steph said was that what she likes about playing these games is that she likes to go into the shoes of the everyday of other individuals nested within communities. And so that sort of shows me, because in a game you often are confronted with problems and conflicts, and that's precisely why you need to control your avatar, that what it is that we want to do most as humans is to be working on problems and conflicts uh, those around us or or our own and that that's sort of what the purpose of a video game is to teach us that life is good and fun and as fun and good as it can be when you are working on your own problems as your questions that you you two shared which i thought were brilliant about why you share video games and books and like i guess you could even add tv shows and like certain sports and shared hobbies is it seems that you want to create a shared reality with a person by means of uh, shared good things, good things shared in common, as it were. And that, um, well, you want to share the finest things with the people around you so that they become the finest people they can possibly be and that so they reflect and measure you in that way. And so it makes sense that you would always want those around you to be being edified by the same tools which had edified you and ideally they develop the sort of taste necessary to do the same for you which it sounds like you two are doing which is a very beautiful thing to witness so there you go a series of short questions as required by the app um, but we're constantly sort of pushing against its attempts to shorten our conversations uh, anyway Thanks again for all of those questions and comments, and uh, to the one about um, how conscientiousness and creativity connect, um, I thought it was interesting, something Stephanie said as we were listening to those, uh, is that she normally does need to know sort of what all the parts of a problem are and why everything fits together the way it does for her to approach something that has more uh, of a long-term importance. Um, but that she really likes that in games, she feels she has the freedom to go ahead and be distracted by lots of other things going on, and that the uh, the long-term program or goal will still be there, and that she can come back to it without too much consequence. Um, so that's another sort of aspect of that, right? Playing in other people's shoes, it also lets you sort of let let go of some of the things that you normally, in real life, um, are are. Uh, are parts of your personality, right? So anyway, um, yeah, thanks for those. And uh, I, I also wanted to quickly submit a correction from back in episode eight about the Runaway Five. When I called the Beatles the Fab Five, I really, I think I just was getting confused with how there's six of them. Uh, the Runaway Five, that is, there's actually six. So I thought for the Beatles, well, there's really five, but no, there's they're actually just the Fab Four. Okay, so the Fab Four. If I've made other errors or been careless or sloppy with my interpretations, left things out, just bring it to my attention, please. I want to thank uh, Alex for that. And uh, I also wanted to thank this week my parents who've been listening in on the program. My dad, he's always sending me articles that I'll find interesting as we're trying to come to grips with what's really behind the news of the day. 
and my mom, who reads all the books I never tire of getting her for all her birthdays and for all these holidays, and then talking to me about them. So, thank you guys. I owe you a lot. So, zombies and ghosts are on the loose here. Welcome to Threed. The name in English sounds like a pun on 3D. The original spelling, Threek, connotes the thrill of fear you feel on exploring Earthbound's third town. In some ways, it's reminiscent of the very opening of the game, when you explored that hilltop in the middle of the night. But the darkness here somehow takes on a more sinister aspect. Perhaps the difference is due to the ominous music, conjuring up every ghost story and Halloween shudder that ever seemed to presage something really supernatural lurking in the dark, beyond the campfire or the streetlights. What you cannot see, but feel that with a chill, it can see you and get you. Or perhaps it's the fearsome foes infesting most of the town, trick-or-treat kids with pumpkins for heads, eerie marionettes, and dumpster goblins. Somewhat surprisingly, there are no actual zombies to be seen, except at the very edge of town. For all the rumors swirling around in the fear that leads people to lock their doors and not open when you knock, and which compresses the town around its center, where of all things a circus tent is being commandeered as the headquarters of the survivors' resistance. You'll even hear rumors of someone called Master Belch, who seems to be behind the terror and the darkness hanging over the town, leading the monsters roaming under its shade. Which always confused me as a kid. Because wait, I thought the being behind all this was known as Gigas, the universal cosmic destroyer. And that doesn't sound anything like Master Belch. But in the same way that the cultists of happy happyism mistook Carpenter for a prophet, even kidnapping Paula on his orders, though she herself is clearly good. So the denizens of Threed seem to suffer from a myopia about the identity of the evil assailing them, mistaking its proximal agent for its ultimate source, cowering against one local danger when the true story is so much bigger that the only possible response is wisdom, friendship, and courage. Ness and Paula might be well justified in feeling optimistic. They've ridden the bus with the band and outrun the ghosts in the tunnel. They've overcome cultists and the cave. And somehow the dark corners of Threed hold less fear when you don't confront them quite alone. And if worse comes to worse and one of our heroes falls in battle, their friendly ghost follows the other and still keeps them company. And all it takes is a trip to the hospital and a doctor's fee to revive them, to recoat their spirit with flesh and blood. And it's worth visiting the hospital anyhow, for there's an insignificant item which can be found in a drawer in one of the wards. Using the insignificant item, the game says, gives you a sensation which cannot be understood by someone who does not use something insignificant. <laughs> not only does it mock the item-finding mentality that's fed by so many similar games. You can think of Chrono Trigger with its little blue shinies indicating where items may be picked up. But that claim about the insignificant item could well be turned against the game itself. In a nutshell, it's what I've been investigating with respect to its reverse. Using something significant, such as the game, gives you a feeling which you sense must be possible to share even with others who have not experienced that something. And that significance is not incommunicable, ultimately. 
and that it may also inspire them to seek out such experience, even if they're different, and so much the better. Of course, as it turns out, even this solipsistic, insignificant item left in the hospital drawer during the zombie pandemic does belong to someone in another town who will reward you for returning it to them. So, their insignificant item still has value after you, in turn, bring it back. So talking with the back alley arms dealer, too, you may get the hint that another friend will soon be joining your party, since there ought to be someone who will be able to use the gun-type weapons that are for sale, which neither Ness nor Paula can equip. Like Chekhov's dictum about the rifle or the pistol hanging on the wall for playwrights, the video game designers and players seem to know instinctively that the principle of narrative economy declares it's better not to include a gun, figurative or literal as the case may be, unless it's going to go off. As for who this new character is, and how he's introduced, we'll let that be a story for next week. The only other new element about this third town, besides the dark, and the monsters, the circus tent in the midst, the wagons in the field, and the arms dealer, is, of course, the cemetery. Fitting in with the scary story ambiance, helping explain where all the zombies could have come from, the large cemetery takes up about the northern third of Threed's area. Its gravestones and paths, stern fences, form a kind of maze, densely packed with enemies, so many that the game is even likely to lag at times, rendering their movement. One gravesite in particular is off by itself in the middle of the two halves of the graveyard, separated by the long lane leading to it. And this is yet another of the ways Earthbound plays with players' expectations. For instead of this solitary stone concealing the secret passageway you might be looking for, it serves only as the picturesque backdrop for yet another scrapbook photo. Fuzzy pickles. The Zelda games, for example, would use such setups for you to uncover items, greater or lesser importance. And then you might think of the myths and stories of heroes acquiring powerful weapons from the barrows of dead kin or forgotten warriors. But an earthbound something else will hide under the graveyard. For example, I was thinking of the hobbits captured by the Barrow White after they leave the house of Tom Bombadil, or of Gollum, said to have wandered to the, the Misty Mountains because of his love of digging into deep places where he has no business prying. Or you might think of an Ocarina of Time, the Sun Song, and the Shadow Temple, and the path to the Hookshot. But also before all that, uh, you have the Redeads sitting creepily around the town square in the future, so that practically the first thing you experience as adult Link is their horrid embrace, or at least the threat of it. And you might think of this book, if you ever saw it as a kid. It's one that helped me get through such scary parts of books and games when I was growing up. It's called The Very Scary Almanac by Eric Elfman. And then I might think also of how much later I read in Rousseau, in his strange and stirring tract, Emile, where he eschews books through most of the education of his imaginary pupil, and instead suggests a few ways of training for fear. So for example, he says here, The discovery of the cause of the ill indicates the remedy. In everything, habit kills imagination. Only new objects awaken it. In those one sees every day, it is no longer imagination which acts, but memory. And that is the reason for the axiom, ab osuetis non fit passio. 
for only by the fire of the imagination are the passions kindled. Do not then reason with him whom you want to cure of loathing of the dark. Take him out into it often, and rest assured that all the arguments of philosophy are not equal in value to this practice. Tylers on roofs do not get dizzy, and one never sees a man who is accustomed to being in the dark afraid of it. This is therefore an additional advantage of our night games. But for these games to succeed, I cannot recommend enough that there be gaiety in them. Nothing is so sad as darkness. Do not go and close your child up in a dungeon. Let him be laughing as he enters the dark. Let laughter overtake him again before he leaves it. While he is still there, let the idea of the entertainments he is leaving and those he is going to find again forbid him fantastic imaginings which could come there to seek him out. So, that's from page uh, 135 in the Bloom translation of Emile. Um, and now, I would also, again, t to that point about imagination and habit, I'd want to cite, I think an appropriate song here, Sufjan Stevens' song on the Illinois album, they are night zombies. They are neighbors. They have come back from the dead. Ah, that's the title. And part of the song goes, We are awakened with the axe, night of the living dead at last. They have begun to shake the dirt, wiping their shoulders from the earth. I know, I know the nations pass. I know, I know they must at last. They tremble with the nervous thought of having been at last forgot. And I just love that he makes that connection between zombies and the bodily resurrection. Just as in the opening song about the UFO sighting, he has the opportunity to use the word revenant and to speak or sing of incarnation. I think there is such a thing as wonder, even in the most habitual occurrences, people, places, as I think Sufjan's songs here and on his other albums, do attest. And as a side note, he also talks about Montaigne in one of his monologues, at least. So that's most endearing. Anyway, finally, after you pass through the bigger cemetery half, you do encounter that pair of zombie guards. But they neither fight you, nor will they let you pass. It says, one stares into your soul, the other looks you over. And that's it. And with that ambiguous anticlimax, you're stuck. You can't leave Threed, and you've explored every part of it. Before disclosing the solution to this riddle in the dark, let's pause a moment to gather together what this unfortunate place seems to be telling us. First, and most overt, there's the juxtaposition of the cemetery and the circus. Both account for large swaths of the town. Both are occupied by someone who shouldn't be there. The monsters in the one, you can defeat all you want, and there will always appear more. But the aimless leaders in the other, you can neither help nor persuade. In place of an entertaining show, some death-defying acrobatics or clown car antics, this sorry bunch huddles and bemoans their fate, incapable of coming up with any remedy. The parallel to the circus of real-life politicians here is bitter satire. As for the cemetery... The need for that is plain. It's the flip side of the circus of politics. It's death and dying 
that we like best not to think about or speak about. And in the game it exists without any organizing framework. None of the graves have names you can read. None of them have flowers placed around them. The story of that one stone off by itself is a mystery. All there is that you can read upon the fence, which keeps the dead and the undead from encroaching any further, is that familiar sign, Don't Enter, which by now we know is an open invitation. There's no church, no religion, which in its root meaning, religion, signifies linking back, being bound, to some tradition. You fight puppets around town, and that's plain enough to interpret. You fight ghosts in the cemetery, restless, intangible, lacking individuality, yet able to harm and to spook, and even able to possess you in a frightening manner. The no-good flies and garbage-can-animating foes seem like distorted versions of buzz-buzz, the magic butterflies, and the wholesome trash of your hometown which held hamburgers instead of aggressive corruption. And what of the zombies themselves? Not that other British band maker of lovely songs like Rose for Emily. I mean the ones who stand in your way so impassively. In place of the gift of more life, they embody a return from death as living death, enslaved to some witch doctor or other, hordes of mindless, ravenous, walking dead, making in their own image. The popularity of the zombie genre has got to be one of the most striking in what is a litany of markers of degeneration in our culture, which are well reported upon, but for all that hope is not lost as there's always a self-satire which is alive and well. You have the satire of politics. You have the satire of Shaun and the Dead's opening, se <laughs> opening sequence uh, and really its whole concept in that movie up till that lovely twist at the end with a nod to playing video games. Or as in Earthbound Here, you have one zombie that stares into your soul and the other looks you over. In passing, we ought to mention the successor to the Fresh Breeze movement, which is the Parents Opposing Obsession Plan. Just check that acronym out. And in opposition to their opposition, a couple of bulletin boards in town have been scrawled with graffiti from the game developers celebrating their studio, HAL Labs, with its view of Mount Fuji, and another with a cryptic yet self-explanatory motto, just play it. And so there's parts in this game that you can't return to. You just play it. Like the opening night in Onet. Like the dark before the light in Threed. And as far as how to escape, maybe that's a good hint. There's another billboard that says if you're getting tired, you should head west to the Threed Sunset Hotel. And if you do, you'll run across... Uh, what looks like the character who calls himself a con man in one of the other houses, watching around the corner of the, the building as a strange woman stands in front of the hotel. And if you follow her inside, you'll hear that the music that normally plays there is strangely distorted. And if you follow through the empty rooms, you'll find that one of the rooms is not empty at all, and that she is not there alone. And that's so much for my attempt at a little suspense for next week's show. We'll see what happens to our heroes 
and not to make this too melodramatic. But again, I've certainly enjoyed taking us through Threed, and we'll go on to Winters next week. Thanks again for listening. Until then, take care.